Okay, um, what do you think, yes or no? What's your bet? No. No. Ah, ye oh, of little faith. Alas, alas? Don't you like this poem? Oh, I thought you were talking about whether there would be a snow day tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. No, tomorrow's supposed to be a decent day. Unlike this. Yeah, that's what I was asking. Yeah. So, what's your bet? You don't think so? I think maybe. No, I don't. I don't. Hedging your bets? <laughs> and that was uh, adroitly rescued with that word enjoy. Nice. <laughs> God, it just must be, you must be so, everyone must be so thrilled by this invigorating weather. <laughs> Do you really think so? No. No, I didn't think you did. Where are you from? New York City. It's all not black. Ancestors in England. Why would it explain it? Because England is so gray and dreary. Oh, so, this, yeah, this is what they, in England, they call a dull day. Um, were you away? Huh? No, it didn't get the extra day. Oh, it didn't? Yeah, weird. God. <laughs> All right, yeah, you missed our, um, we, we enjoyed, we enjoyed um, a consideration of the odds of it being February 29th yesterday. I was here for that. Oh, you were? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Here. It was Monday, I was here. <laughs> All right. Um, so, we were in stanza nine. Um, oh, joy, the very strange oh, joy. Oh, joy that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. Um, and that was the surprise, why the joy? And what um, I said just at the end of class yesterday is think about um, the work the poem is doing as transforming a loss of intensity into intensity itself. Um, the fact that that intensity is lost becomes even more intense than the thing that's lost. So the embers, the joy, Huge. Remember, the child of joy was what he could no longer feel that he was experiencing. Um, shout round me, let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. Thou child of joy, shout round me, let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. Um, but now he's actually asserting that he himself is feeling the joy. joy. Oh, joy that in our embers is something that doth live very interesting word there, something. Oh, joy that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. What does fugitive mean there? Fleeting, fleeting. yeah, precisely. Um, what's fugitive is what's fleeting, what um, doesn't stay, what um, fugo in Latin means to flee, I flee. So what is fugitive is um, what can't stay with you. If you know the term fugitive pieces, it means writing by people that um, is very hard to hunt down. They published something, but then it just disappeared. Um, the thought of our past years, and notice those hours, oh joy that in our embers is something that doth live. 
the thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction. So, what does benediction mean, literally? Blessing. Sorry? Blessing. Blessing. Yeah. Um, it is, it is um, saying or calling upon something good for the thing um, under benediction, benedictere, um, to say good, um, to say good things. Um, so, yeah, remember the blessed creatures he's talked about earlier, ye blessed creatures, I have heard the call ye to each other make. Um, now he's saying, I am perpetually blessing them. The thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction. And then again, this very strange words worthy in turn. Not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed. So a lot of people, you know, we, we spent a fair amount of time dissing Wordsworth, um, dissing the older Wordsworth, um, and that's uh, a dissertation. How's that for a pun? Um, okay, sorry. That's disrespect that um, you can believe in. That's my motto, disrespect you can believe in. Uh, the older Wordsworth really was a jerk. Um, however, it's a real mistake to say of the younger Wordsworth, and we're still, we're getting to the end of the younger Wordsworth, but we're still there. This is Wordsworth at his greatest. It's a mistake to say of the great Wordsworth what many, many, many people say of him, many, many, many um, literary critics say of him, um, which is that there, there's something um, hyper-normalized about him. Wordsworth is often treated as um, a not very interesting poet, a good poet, but a not very interesting poet. Um, and Wordsworth is probably even more than Frost, um, the poet whom it's easiest to underrate, um, easiest to think that you have a handle on. Um, that is that Wordsworth, yeah, he's really intense, and he has these intense descriptions of nature and um, intense poems of sadness about uh, no longer feeling what he once felt about nature. Um, but he doesn't have a lot of people will tell you or will think. Um, there isn't an interesting twist in Wordsworth. He's not a twisted enough person to be um, as interesting as a lot of other writers are, if you find twisted writers interesting, which I do. Um, but I think Wordsworth is, one of the things that makes Wordsworth so interesting is that he has these completely unexpected and strange twists. Um, he is not a kind of what he became later, which is a kind of spokesman for the normal. Um, Wordsworth is about as unnormal in his own processes of thought as you can imagine. You know, I mean, there's there's the whole romantic with a small r, not romantic with with a large r, but the, but these things are connected. But there's the whole romantic idea of the tormented genius artist addicting themselves to death at an early age um, because that's the price that they pay for the art. They become artists because they're tormented geniuses. Um, they become tormented geniuses because they get interested in art and so on. Um, it's a cliche, but a cliche with truth behind it um, because it's because torment, 
um, and the and and the analysis, the understanding of torment, um, that's a driver of the production of great art. And people who um, don't read Wordsworth carefully enough think that they won't find that in him. And they think what they won't find is the kind of perversity um, that is the costs, the ruinous costs that lots of great writers pay in order to be great writers. Um, it's a, as I say, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche that's supported by lots of data. Um, lots of really messed up great writers. They're more messed up than, than the general population, and in my opinion, that's saying a lot. Um, so, but people tend to think of Wordsworth as not that kind of person, and I think that's wrong. Um, and if you look at a moment like this, which, um, well, another way of putting it is to say that people tend to think of Wordsworth as pious. Partly what I'm trying to say is you're going to hear about Wordsworth in other classes, and if, if you hear about Wordsworth from people who actually don't study Wordsworth and aren't obsessed with Wordsworth, what they're going to say is, oh, Wordsworth, he's just a kind of pious uh, nothing. Um, have you heard that from people? Well, you will. Depends what you take. Be very careful. Um, and that's just wrong. Wordsworth is, in some sense, the most scarily impious poet that you can imagine. And here's a moment where you can see that, where he looks on a very cursory reading as though he's being pious. But look what he says. The thought of our past years in me doth read perpetual benediction. So you say, look, piety. He's saying, oh, I think of the past, and I bless the past, and it's all good. But then look what he says. Not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed. Delight and liberty, the simple creed of childhood, whether busy or at rest, with new-fledged hope still fluttering in his breast. That's not what makes me bless the thought of our past years. Not the thing that should be blessed. Not what's worthy to be blessed. Not the little children, children of the future, children are wonderful, it's all good, we have to be nice to children. No child left behind. He says that's not what's interesting to him. And that should really strike you. That's a kind of unpacking of the custom will lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life, oh joy. That's, those turns are really strange. And you should pay attention to that strangeness. It's a little bit like what Auden will pick up in Lullaby. I know you thought we were done. Um, that is the mortal guilty, but to me the entirely beautiful. That is, it's not what you would expect in a kind of more standard poem, which is something like um, innocent and therefore the entirely beautiful, still innocent, and so the entirely beautiful, but no, mortal guilty, but to me the entirely beautiful. And again, the it's but to me, because I like mortality and guilt. That's what I find beautiful, is mortality and guilt. That's what Auden is saying. What enables Auden to say that is Wordsworth. What enables Auden to think that way 
is the thinking Wordsworth has done in the Intimations Ode. So, in going back to, to the distinction that we were looking at yesterday between the um, view of the fall of the individual from paradise or a sense of paradise to experience, from innocence to experience, as a step-like fall, which is the first four stanzas version, to a you-are-born falling, which is the reprised version. Notice how this fits in with the reprised version, which is, no, yeah, childhood, sure, that's what everyone should bless, but that's the step-like thing. There was a time when everything was great and people were innocent and it was all nice, but he says, that's not what I'm blessing. I should be. If I were a grandparent, I would be. But that's not what I'm blessing. What I'm blessing instead is some other fact that even though it's a persistent fall, that falling is experienced, he's, you could say, you could unpack what he's about to say, it's experienced as falling. It's not experienced as, oh, now I'm an adult and, you know, I really like going to good restaurants and making a lot of money and it's all fine. It's experienced as falling still. So he's not blessing what he's lost and saying it's really good that there are children who are shouting and being happy and, um, and picking flowers in a thousand valleys far and wide, which is, again, what he said in the first four stanzas. Sure, that's what's most worthy to be blessed, but that's not what I'm blessing. So not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed, to wit, delight and liberty, the simple creed of childhood, whether busy or at rest, with new-fledged hope still fluttering in his breast. Not for these I raise the song of thanks and praise, but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, that is, questionings of whether what's outside us really exists, whether um, what we perceive through the senses is what reality really is. Those obstinate questionings, just tell me about that word obstinate. Yeah. Okay, so something defiant, refusing to go along, Rachel? Also something that I feel like if you're asked, like if something's asked, I feel like in this case, as much as maybe he'll feel like he'll get to an answer, it necessarily won't always be like a definite answer. Like if there's always going to be a question, whether or not one question is answered, there's always going to be perpetual questions that just like, they, they just won't go away. Yeah, obstinate is usually a bad word. Um, obstinate is, is, what's the synonym? Stubborn. Stubborn is the standard synonym for obstinate. Um, yeah, um, obstinate literally means, I think it literally means standing in the way, um, like the ob of obstru obstruction um, or, or oblivious or obviate. Yeah? Um, the those makes me think he's referring to something he's referred to before. Yes, what would that be? The, um, what was so fugitive? Mm-hmm. Which, so the obstinate and, and the fugitive, I guess, kind of go together, and it's, it's sort of that which he was 
bringing up before the the few the elusive questionings the thing the the questions you are always searching for. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, where he actually is referring back to something earlier in the poem. Where are the questionings earlier in the poem? Just in the most literal sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you go back to the end of stanza four, what's happening here in stanza nine is that he's praising what has happened at the end of stanza four, which before had been what blocked him. I hear, I hear, with joy I hear. This is, this is line 50. That is, that's the, the shepherd boy shouting around. The children are calling on every side in a thousand valleys far and wide, fresh flowers. While the sun shines warm and the babe leaps on his mother's arm, I hear, I hear, with joy I hear, but there's a tree of many, one, a single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat, whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? Those are the questionings. That is, he's got, in, he's got himself to say, I hear, I hear, with joy I hear, it's all great, and yet this obstinate questioning won't leave him alone. Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now? the glory and the dream. You could also go back to why with such earnest pains dost thou provoke the ears to bring the inevitable yoke thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's that's um, him questioning the child. It's, it's another question. You're absolutely right about that. But the obstinate questioning is something like I can get myself into, a, into the mood of, of joyous, childish happiness on earth but something keeps saying, but what's missing? Something keeps asking me, where is that missing thing? And so now what he's done is he's saying the very fact that those questionings don't drop away, that I can't feel so in touch with the world as I did, that if I can do it, it won't last to put it in Frost's terms, that truth keeps breaking in. Remember how truth breaks in in Birch's? What does truth break in with? The birches are with ice, yeah. That it's, an I that, that it's ice that bends the birches like that. He says, remember I was about to say before truth broke in with that stuff about the ice? Or with her, with... Um, I forget what it is, with her whatever it is about the ice. Um, I was about to say that I should prefer some boy had been swinging them. So notice that there's a preference in Frost. I should prefer some boy had, been, had swung them. There's a preference in Wordsworth. I hear, I hear, with joy I hear, when he hears the boy, the happy shepherd boy. That's his preference, is for it all to be good and on the surface and innocent. But truth breaks in. Obstinate questionings break in. There's a tree of many, one, a single field that I've looked upon. And now he's saying, I don't raise the song of thanks and praise for childhood, although I should. Notice that he has a sense of what the morally right thing to do is, but that's not what he's doing. 
but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized, high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing, surprised, capital T. So our mortal nature trembles like a guilty thing surprised before our own high instincts. And that's what I find so wonderful, that that should happen. Anyone know where the phrase guilty thing surprised comes from? Strike a chord with anyone? It trembled like a guilty thing surprised. It's the ghost in Hamlet. That's how the ghost in Hamlet is described at sunrise. That it trembles like a guilty thing surprised and then it disappears. So it's now our mortal nature trembles in the same way, like a guilty thing surprised. And that's what he's so happy about. So again, Well, let me ask you, since I've been saying it, but now I'll just ask whether you believe it. English teachers do that sometimes. Um, do you think, whether consciously or unconsciously, that somewhere in Auden he's remembering these lines, dimly perhaps, but remembering them much in the same way that Wordsworth is remembering Hamlet, although may not know it? You may have noticed that the phrase humorous stage is in quotation marks on um, at line 104, filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age, etc. Um, and the humorous um, stage is in quotation marks because he's actually quoting a poem by the, um, by the minor Elizabethan sonneteer Samuel Daniel, who talks about um, life and, and, the, hum and um, the humorous stage that he's at. Um, Oh yeah, we, you read the footnote, but humor there means the theory of the humors. Does everyone know the theory, uh, the, know what that means if I say the theory of the humors? Okay, so th th this is one of those very basic facts you need to know to read like 16th or 17th century literature or science if you get into the history of science. Um, if you have ever heard someone talked of as phlegmatic or bilious or sanguine, um, there was a theory, or there was a theory, um, or choleric, that's the other one. There's a theory um, in the 16th and 17th century, and I think even earlier than that. Yeah, it is earlier than that. Um, which is essentially the dim beginning of the modern theory of hormones. That people have different um, uh, proportions of what are called humors, which are like the liquids in the eye. You know what your vitreous humor is. So humor is actually um, the same root as humid, and it means um, a liquid or a semi-liquid substance. And depending on what semi-liquid substance predominates in you, um, you will have one of four general personalities, um, bilious, um, choleric, splenetic, um, phlegmatic, um, sanguine, but I think uh, 
think splenet I think spleen causes cholera. And the idea is that different organs produce different um, humors. Um, so if you have a, it, so um, if you're bilious, it's that your liver is overactive. If you're splenetic, your spleen is overactive, etc. Um, phlegmatic, we still have in the term phlegm. Um, phlegm is is that semi-liquid. So I know a lot of you are sick and you don't want to hear this, but it's that semi-liquid humor. Um, and phlegmatic people are supposed to have a lot of phlegm and to to be hard to rile. Um, and um, so the theory of the humors is a theory of different personality types. Um, Hamlet says of himself that he must lack gall to make oppression bitter. Gall, I think, and I think gall and bile are the same thing. Um, that is, that's why what Claudius does to him, he just doesn't respond. He says, "I can't believe myself. Look what he's doing," but I'm letting him get away with it. I'm sure I lack gall to make oppression bitter. And when we talk about the gall that people have, oh, that gall of what you're doing, um, that goes back to the theory of the humors, that someone who has a lot of gall will act with a lot of gall. Someone who has a lot of phlegm will act phlegmatically. Um, someone who um, has a lot of blood will be sanguine, um, same root as the word blood, um, sang. And, well, not, a, not the English word blood, but um, but uh, French and Latin, um, and so on. So the humorous stage that Samuel Daniel and that now Wordsworth is quoting from, um, basically is there's a there's a play by Ben Jonson which which um, whose title gives you the idea here. Every man in his humor, um, and when you talk about someone who's good humored, it just means that um, humors that make them likable are the ones that predominate in them. Um, so the idea of the humor is a personality type. Um, so that's just stuff you should know. This is background factoids. Um, so um, here he's quoting Hamlet um, that um, the ghost disappears like a guilty thing surprised. But I suspect he doesn't know it. I suspect it's just his brain, his mind is full of Hamlet. And those are always the most interesting moments of quotation. Quotation which is unconscious. Quotation which is, he's read something. We talked about this already. He's read something. And the words have been words that haunt him and that somehow become part of him. And then when he writes, he produces the same words without even knowing that he's getting them from Shakespeare. I'm not certain of that. He may want us. He may know that this is from Shakespeare. He may want us to know it. Um, but he could very well not. Nevertheless, a guilty thing surprised, that's not just a phrase that two people would, would um, come up with independently. Um, so my question for you is, when you have our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised, do you think that on some level, whether consciously or unconsciously, Auden is remembering this when he describes her as mortal guilty, but to me the entirely beautiful. That is that combination of mortal and guilty in this sense of what I'm blessing is something which is not most worthy to be blessed, um, but to me the entirely beautiful. So that's my question. There's a question mark at the end of that. It's an obstinate question. 
maybe. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be cool if you did because um, that would be nifty. Sorry. I said that would be nifty, but I don't. Um, it it doesn't seem like something that could be easily proved without like going through his papers and like seeing that he wrote letters and was like. This poem is great while well, he was writing the other poem. Well, what if he knew that he really loved the poem without his ever um, actually quoting that moment? But what if he just knew that he really loved the poem? Yeah. yeah. May I do research? I have Hamlet on my iPod and I want to find the line. May I? Sure. Okay. Um, but I think that this is, if you think of Auden as, to some, as somehow dimly remembering this. You know, he not thinking, oh yes, Wordsworth, but just the Intimations Ode is a poem he knows really well, and then he's writing lullaby, and the words that come to his mind are mortal and guilty in this interesting juxtaposition, that he's praising and blessing something that's mortal and guilty. Um, I think what it does is two things. It kind of enriches Auden's poem because you see him as thinking in the same way Wordsworth is thinking. And it also enriches the Intimations Ode because you see how Auden thinks about it. And again, this doesn't have to be conscious at all. Um, what you will find as you read a lot of literature is there are many, many, many unconscious echoes. Um, there's a famous uh, moment in Dr. Johnson when he is praising a poem of um, Thomas Gray's. Um, and he says, some of this poem is crap, but some of it's really great. And then he quotes a part that he thinks is really great. And the part that he's quoting is actually, he says, this, is, this seems to me entirely original. But the part that he's quoting is actually something that is clearly um, an allusion and meant to be an allusion to Shakespeare's measure for measure. And not only is Gray echoing measure for measure, but he's echoing a speech that Johnson himself had been obsessed with a few years earlier. So what happens is here's this speech that Johnson really loved in measure for measure. And now it's a few years later, and he's reading Gray, and Gray echoes the speech. And he says, God, that's good. And he's forgotten the speech that Gray was remembering. And he says, this seems entirely original on Gray's part. And the part that Johnson is most thrilled by is the part that's least original. Um, but it reminds Johnson of something that was there to be reminded of. His mind has been haunted by those words and, and has somehow internalized those words. Um, and I think you'll see that happening all the time, that, um, that we talked about this before, the Harold Bloom idea, that what makes you want to be a poet is that somehow these poems are saying what you want to say and you feel you understand them better than the poet who wrote them. And then, well, so what can you do? Well, you want to do the same sort of thing. Um, well, if that's true, then it's not going to be surprising that there's a kind of haunting of language that can be in your mind without your quite knowing it, but which nevertheless can um, be illuminated 
by other usages of the same language. You find out who someone loved. If you want to know what a poem, what a poem means, find out what that poem loves. The most obvious example of this we saw was in Bishop and Hemans. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck trying to recite. The boy stood on the burning deck. Um, incredible line, the boy stood on the burning deck. I mean, we, we, you think we talked about it plenty. We didn't. But just think what Bishop must have been doing, that she reads Hemans, or she remembers it, or she learns it in sixth grade. And there's an unbelievably good line, the boy stood on the burning deck, in a Drecky poem, which turns out to be, you know, a poem about war and, and ships burning. But here's this amazing line, the boy stood on the burning deck. And so what does she do? She writes a poem about that line. And she preserves what's good about it. She says, I mean, you've all had the experience of reading like epigraphs in a novel and saying, that's really good. And then eventually reading where they come from and they're not so good when you get to where they come from. Um, that's a really crucial experience to have of literature because essentially what will happen, what that means is that the epigraphist, the person who selects those words, knows how good the words are. And by taking them out of context, the words really shine in their wonder. And what a poet will do, like Bishop, is, or what it means to set a good epigraph to a chapter or to a novel, when it's better out of context than in, that's a gesture like writing a poem. You could call that the minimalist gesture of writing a poem. It's a kind of found object, poem as found object. And that found object is beautiful. And being able to find it is beautiful. Emerson, who I quoted before, but Emerson has um, an essay called Quotation and Originality. And what he said, one of the things he says in that essay is um, next to the originator of a good sentence is the first quoter thereof. The first person who can take the sentence out of its context and quote it is practically, says Emerson, as good as the person who wrote it. Because the person who wrote it had a reason for writing it. It's part of the flow of whatever, whatever she's saying. But the person who says, I don't care about the flow. I just care about this one sentence. And look how good it is when you don't know what it's about. Look how much better it is when you don't know what it's about. That's a really important talent. What poets do, what writers do, is they select words. If they sometimes select a group of words, that's still the same talent as selecting a word. Um, a poem we're going to look at, um, I think we're going to try to do two more poems before, we're going to try to do two more poems before we get to um, um, Turn of the Screw. But one of them is the poem called Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came. Does anyone know where that comes from, the title? Um, doesn't it come from King Lear? Yep. Does that make you want to read King Lear? OK, good. Yeah, so it's a line from King Lear, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. 
here are some things that are not in King Lear. Someone named Roland. Anyone who's a child in the technical sense that Roland is a child, that is an apprentice knight. It's C-H-I-L-D-E. Um, it's kind of dark, King Lear, but there are no towers in it. So here's this amazing line, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. And you may say to yourself, that's such a good line, I want to read King Lear to find out what that line's about. And if you do, you will either be horrendously disappointed when you get to the line, or you'll be thrilled because, depending on, on how you understand the line's function in the play. So what Robert Browning did was he said, that line, that's an amazing line. Um, I'm going to write a poem about that line. And so that's what he does. Um, his main character, the speaker of the poem, is Roland, is Child Roland. And where Child Roland is trying to get to is the Dark Tower. And then has anyone read um, Stephen King's Dark Tower? Octet, I think it is. I think there are eight novels. So then Stephen King read Browning. And he said, God, this is an amazing poem. And God, look at that line. I think I have to write a novel about it. And then he ends up writing eight novels before his character Roland finally figures out about the Dark Tower. Um, so a single line in Lear produces like a 450-line poem by Browning, which produces something like a million and a half words by Stephen King. Um, and that's the kind of expansion that happens, is that a good quotation, a good line, a good quotation taken out of context, that's powerful. So that's what Bishop is doing. The boy stood on the burning deck. That's great. Yeah. Um, if I can just yeah. go all the way back. Um, so I found the line <coughs> in Hamlet, um, and I don't know if this is just me completely being erroneous and grasping at straws, but well, the whole line is, and then it started like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons. I have heard the cock that is the trumpet to the morn doth with his lofty and shrill-sounding throat awake the god of day, and at his warning, whether in sea or fire, in earth or air, the extravagant and erring spirit hides to his confine, and of the truth here in this present object made probation. And the word probation for me really kind of brought back like the the obstinate and the kind of nice. the held back and the and the imagery of, of, of sort of the, the sun banishing death is like a little made me think of our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting the soul that rises with us our life star. So I don't know if, if that's at all a worthy parallel, but I the, just the image of, of, you know, Wordsworth getting stuck and then this kind of light simultaneously giving him this revelation that humans begin falling, but also kind of, <clears throat> like, the implication at the end of the visionary gleam, where is, where is it now the glory and the dream is death, just that happens, and then life goes on and you die, and then this, this star rising and banishing that, and that, I don't know, I saw that in this line. Yeah, and, but notice also the mourning and the, and the thrill, that, that would be the happy shepherd boy, mm. but what he's praising is the guilty thing part that goes running away from that. So yeah, nice, and highs to his confine, which in Hamlet is purgatory. Um, the ghost is confined to fast and fires during the day when the sun is out, yeah. Can I ask if something is a complete stretch? 
Yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's Hamlet himself who's famous for his obstinate questionings. The ghost says, just go take revenge. And he says, okay. And then he says, well, actually, I wonder. And they question throughout the entire play. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think that's a stretch at all. Um, okay, so high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. But for those first affections, that's what he's praising, those shadowy recollections, which be they what they may are yet the fountain light of all our day, are yet a master light of all our seeing, uphold us, cherish, and have power to make our noisy years seem moments in the being of the eternal silence, truths that wake to perish never which neither listlessness, that is the state of the adult, nor mad endeavor, the state of the child or of the adult trying to recover the child, words where it's saying 30 is the new 12, nor mad endeavor, nor man, nor boy, nor all that is at enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy. So the man can't destroy it, that's fine, but neither can the boy. All of that, there's something more obscure behind all of that, that neither man nor boy, nor all that is at enmity with joy, can utterly abolish or destroy. So notice how far we've gotten from the child as father to the man. And I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. Now what he's saying is man and boy are against this shadowy recollection that I find in my embers but it can't be utterly abolished nor destroyed. Hence, in a season of calm weather, though inland far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither, can in a moment travel thither and see the children sport upon the shore and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. So the metaphor here is that life is a process of going inland. You're brought to this world from this immortal sea. And then you go onto the shore, and as a child you sport upon the shore, but then you go further and further inland. But the children and the adults, they're, they're both landed. They're both off the immortal sea. But we can still hear it. Yeah. Is this his brother died at sea, right? Yes. Is this supposed to be referencing that? I don't think so, but it may be on his mind in the same way that, that Hamlet's on his mind. How did his brother die? Drowned. Um, I think in 1802, if I recall correctly. Um, yeah, John Wordsworth. Um, I almost met one of his descendants, but I don't think I ever did. Um, there were two literary critics um, are descended from John Wordsworth. William Wordsworth has no descendants, but John did. One was named Jonathan Wordsworth. Um, and one was named Anne Wordsworth. Uh, Jonathan died fairly recently. Um, I think Anne Wordsworth is still alive. Um, so now we get back to, it turns out it's still the same May morning in the poem. Um, it's two years later in the writing, but 
we're back in stanza 10 to now while the birds, to stanza three, now while the birds thus sing a joyous song and while the young lambs bound us to the tabor sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. Now we're stanza 10. Then sing ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song and let the young lambs bound us to the tabor sound. So the idea in the fiction is that he's thought this all through on that morning, that it worked for a minute, and then it didn't work, and then he's plunged into despair, and then he meditated and thought this all through, as we're thinking it all through in the single reading that we're doing as we just go through the poem in you know, the 20 minutes it takes to read it, as we've been doing. Then sing ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song, and let the young lambs bound as to the tabor sound. We in thought will join your throng. So this becomes a poem which is very much about thought, which is something that he can do, that he's forced to do. He's thrown into the world of thought rather than simply being present in the world of nature. Um, the other great poem that he's written about this time is a poem called Tintern Abbey, which is similar in a lot of ways to the Intimations Ode. Um, and if you look at Tintern Abbey, if you l just look at versions of the word think or thought in Tintern Abbey, it's everywhere that what is saving is the restlessness of thought, is the restlessness of thinking. We in thought will join your throng. Ye that pipe and ye that play, ye that through your hearts today feel the gladness of the May. What though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind, in the primal sympathy which having been must ever be, and then again Wordsworth at his weirdest, in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering. Not soothing thoughts that counter human suffering, but the very fact that we suffer is a soothing idea. In the faith that looks through death and years that bring the philosophic mind. And so finally, the last concluding stanza, and O oh, ye fountains, meadows, hills, and groves, returning to the beginning, there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream and O oh, ye fountains, meadows, hills, and groves, forebode not, that is, don't worry about, any severing of our loves. Yet in my heart of hearts I feel your might. That's also from Hamlet, heart of hearts. Yet in my heart of hearts I feel your might. I only have relinquished one delight to live beneath your more habitual sway. So yeah, I don't have this experience every day. I did relinquish that delight. But... I love the brooks which down their channels fret even more than when I tripped lightly as they. So notice, love's the boy stood on the burning deck. Love comes with loss, with the possibility of loss. So I love them more than when I thought I loved them wholly. The innocent brightness of a newborn day is lovely yet. The clouds that gather round the setting sun do take a sober coloring from an eye that hath kept watch o'er man's mortality. So I see richer colors 
the sun is setting, but the clouds that gather around the sun, that, that coloring is more sober, more somber, more subtle, and therefore more beautiful. Another race hath been, and other poems are one, thanks to the human heart by which we live. And then if people haven't read the poem up to now, they think this is just pious. But it's not. The human heart is not the pious heart. The human heart is the, is the heart that takes pleasure in suffering and in loss. Thanks to the human heart by which we live, thanks to its tenderness, its joys, and fears, to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. So remember, it's the pansy at my feet does the same tale repeat. Now he's saying, that's great. This little flower, flower of thought, pansy or pansy, has, gives rise to thoughts that are deeper than the weight with which custom lies upon one, heavy as frost and deep almost as life. But the thoughts go deeper still. And you only get that depth through loss. That's why loss can be more intense than the very thing that is lost. OK, for Monday, we didn't quite finish on time, but we did finish. For Monday, read the poem by Shelley called Mont Blanc. Um, I would say read it three or four times. It's a hard poem. Mont Blanc um, in the Norton Anthology. And then we'll go over with some patience. <laughs>